0: Well, good evening and Merry Christmas. My name is uh, Ben Milner and I'm one of the pastors at Salem Presbyterian Church. And it's so good to be here. Um, Really been looking forward to this. Um, I've been here one time before and just really enjoy the worship uh, of this church and um, love Christmas Eve. Uh, This is a, a great passage you just heard read. It's, uh, it's not the passage I'm going to preach on, unfortunately. I, it was well read, but I, I gave the wrong passage to, to Derek. So I'm going to read another passage. I'm going to continue the story, which comes right after that, actually. So you get a little context from that passage, which is great. But um, I'm preaching on the more traditional story from Christmas. So go ahead, and if you have a Bible, turn to the next chapter. And I'm going to read from Luke 2, 1 through 20. And um, I'll just say that uh, growing up, I, I didn't believe in um, the incarnation, I didn't, I didn't believe, I really didn't believe in, in God even. I, uh, I did believe in this story somehow. I don't know how, but I, I loved this story and we would read it on Christmas Eve as a family and I knew there was something to it. I didn't know exactly what it was, um, but I've come to believe that it actually describes something that really happened, namely the, um, the incarnation of our almighty creator. So this is how it went from Luke chapter two, verses one through 20. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is also the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. So Mary, um, the mother of, of God, when she found out that she was pregnant, she sang this song, and we call it the Magnificat, um, and you might call it the first Christmas carol, because she actually sang uh, this, it's, it's written in verse. And I don't know the tune, but here are some of the words from the Magnificat. This is from Luke 1, 52. Mary sang um, this young teenage girl um, who was now unmarried and pregnant. She's sang, God has cast down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. And I think that that song captures the essence of this passage for tonight, this story of Christmas. Uh, I think that it, it really emphasizes the most distinctly Christian virtue, the most uniquely Christian virtue, and uh, maybe the most important Christian virtue which I would say is humility. And the opposite, of course, is pride. And so I wanna look at um, this humility in the passage. The the humility being not only of uh, of Mary and and the shepherds are very humble people, um, and Joseph, in a way, was himself humbled by all this. He was made to look very bad by all this. And of course, the manger's humble. And Bethlehem's a humble little city, but what I really wanna look at is the, the humility of God. Because what we believe um, as Christians is that uh, Jesus himself was God in the flesh. And so when we see Jesus, we see what God is like. We see right through him into the very nature and heart of who God is. And so what this tells me about God is that God is a God of humility. And the reason he calls us to be humble is because he himself is humble. Yes, he's mighty, um, but he is also a God who is, in, in a sense, you could say even poor in spirit just like the first beatitude. So I want to look at God's humility, which is then a call to us as his followers uh, and his servants to be humble as well. So to understand uh, humility, to understand God's humility, or really any humility, you have to understand uh, the length of descent. Um, In that song we sang, uh, Oh Holy Night, I'd never heard that verse about the towering Uh, grace of God, like a great tower. And uh, it's a great description of God's grace because he comes all the way down from a very great height. Uh, So humility is measured by how far you stoop down. So an ant, you know, we think of an ant as a humble little creature, but an ant really can't have humility in this sense because an ant's so low to the ground, they can't really fall very far down. They can't stoop down, but a, a king can very much stoop very low. And the greater the king, the the lower the king can stoop, the farther down. And Jesus was a great king, or so it says in the story. Because it tells us in verse 11 that unto you is born this day Christ the Lord. And Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is his title, Jesus the King of Kings. Because the Christ, also known as the Messiah, is the Greek word for the Hebrew concept of this king who was coming and would um, be the greatest king ever to live, would be the king of the whole world, would subdue all the kings. And so when verse 11 says, unto you is born this day the king of kings, the Lord, that just shows how great this human being was that was born in that manger. And it also shows how spectacular his descent was. Um, I don't know if you ever drive down 77 through Charlotte. And you look to your right and you see the, uh, the fury, the roller coaster and carowinds, but the, the, it's 325 feet high and the, it's almost a 90 degree angle down. And I think of that um, as, an, as a sign, as a sign of, of the, um, the extent of God, the way he plummeted down onto this earth and in this particular way. In verse 12, it says, this will be a sign, uh, not a roller coaster, but a baby lying in a manger. So if Christ were to develop an app or a logo or something, a symbol, um, you know, obviously a cross works, but also I think a manger would be another good symbol of, of what God is like. And uh, mangers are not uh, these these little comfy, warm uh, cribs that you see in manger scenes. You know, those little things, I always kind of want to crawl up into them. They look so They look like you could easily fall asleep in those kind of mangers. But to quote Webster, a manger is a long open box or trough for horses or cattle to eat from. So my dog's bowl um, back at home is probably, and, you know, it has all that, that crud as any dog's bowl would all over the, that would be cleaner than a, a manger because these, who knows what, I guess uh, oxen and, and uh, maybe sheep and donkeys have been eating this disgusting food out of that manger. And you know, they didn't have disinfectant or baby wipes or anything like that to clean the manger off. So they just put Jesus down into this thing that was disgusting, a manger. And so mangers are very humble. You wouldn't wanna be laid, you would never wanna lay your, your baby in a manger. And shepherds are also humble. And again, shepherds, unfortunately, in manger scenes, they look like the type uh, folks that you would want to go up and kind of uh, you know hang out with. They, they look very gentle, um, almost warm and cuddly. But in fact, the, the real manger, uh, the real shepherds, uh, a shepherd uh, was kind of like a, um, a third shift worker. You know, it was at night, right? They're, they're watching over their flocks by night. And no one has ever wanted to take jobs that where you worked at night. It's just not desirable. That's why you get paid overtime oftentimes at night. And so, uh, these guys, I think of um, where I live, um, which is on Academy Street, where, very near where it hits Peters Creek Parkway, and uh, there's a BP station down there, and uh, it's not a place you would really want to be at night necessarily, that BP station. And I think of the, the Shepherds as the kind of guys that um, you know, on, on their smoking break would go out to that BP and be standing outside. And I see those, those guys down there. And of course, they're making crude jokes. They're, they're cursing. They're flicking you know, cigarette butts on the ground. They're blowing out smoke in the cold air. So that's, that's what you want to imagine when you think about these shepherds, those kind of folks. And imagine the surprise of that crowd. Um, a kind of salty crowd of shepherds when suddenly in verse nine, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. They are the, the, the last people who would expect this mighty theophany. One of the greatest and most shocking in the whole Bible. I can imagine them kind of ducking down and like covering their, shielding their eyes from the glory of this thing. They had never been in the temple. They had never been in the, the holy place or any of these things that the priests and the high priests got to see. Um, they probably never wanted to go there, and, and suddenly it says there was, a, there was with the angel. It was not just one angel. In verse 9, it's one angel, but in verse 13, it's a multitude of the heavenly hosts. That's a very large number of angels. Really, in the Bible, I was trying to think through where else in the Bible the full company of the angels ever appears. And about the only thing I could come up with was in the book of Revelation, where you see God on the throne and the angels and the archangels all around the Lord praising God. But here we are in this little field outside of little Bethlehem, and the heavenly hosts are singing to these shepherds. So that's, that's an amazing thing. That Even that shows the humility of, of heaven, that the angels would appear at this place to these shepherds in these remote fields. And they're pointing to this manger where, when they get there, uh, there is an at-risk, unwed teenage mother holding a baby. It says in verse 12, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And Mary was uh, was from Nazareth, so that was not a very desirable place to live. Um, if you go to Google and type in the least desirable city in the US, um, it's Columbus, Georgia. But if you would type that in back then, it would be Nazareth. Because people said, uh, what good can come from Nazareth? That was a saying that was quoted. So here's Mary from Nazareth. And um, they also thought of Galileans as very uh, foolish, ignorant people. So she was a Galilean. She was from Nazareth. And she's now in Bethlehem. She's not married. Um, She's pregnant. And everyone knew how you got pregnant out of wedlock. And Joseph almost broke the engagement. We did hear that from the first passage. Um, he almost broke the engagement because of this shame that he felt. So there, there's Mary and Joseph. And uh, the shepherds are seeing this. And you know, Mary would not have been anyone's first choice for the mother of God. And um, not any human being's choice for the mother of God. But it was God's choice to be the mother of God, this humble young woman precisely because she was humble, like God. And so the the manger's humble, the shepherds are humble, Mary is humble, and what that tells me is that the God who wrote this story is a humble God. And I wouldn't even believe that it really happened except for what we heard in Luke 1, which is that Luke carefully investigated all these things. And he gives us this census with Quirinius, the governor of Syria. He locates it very specifically in time, and he says, God came to this place. You know, Caesar Augustus created the census, and he had everybody moving around just like he was the Lord. But really, all that was used by God for his purposes of having his son born in Bethlehem in a manger to shepherds to Mary. And so one practical takeaway implication for this is that uh, if the God who you worship, or maybe you don't worship any God, um, but if you do worship God, if the God that you worship is not a humble God, uh, then you are out of touch with the angels. Uh, and you're, I would say you're, you're not in touch with the heart of um, spiritual reality. And ultimately, you have to say you're worshiping an idol because the only God uh, I believe, that has revealed himself is the one that has revealed himself in, in this story, in Jesus. And <clears throat> he is a God of humility. And if you read the Old Testament, you just don't expect this to happen. It's, re- it's a really amazing shift in the narrative. Not, not that God is not humble in the Old Testament, but mostly you see how mighty he is, uh, how holy, how different, how transcendent, and how majestic he is. But now we see him come clothed, and these swaddling cloths, God, in this manger. So that's the first point, the humility of God. Now, you've got to take from that and say to yourself, well, am I that kind of person? Am I the kind of person that is in relationship with the humble God? Because if I am, if I know him well, then that would mean that I would be humble as well. And we see in this, char- uh, in this story these two characters, uh, Mary and the shepherds, And I want to look at how they are humble and how that can teach us about our humility. So first of all, Mary, verse 19, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds, verse 20, returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. So those are the two characters I want to look at. First, Mary and then the shepherds. Now Mary, it says, was treasuring these things up. And that word treasuring up it's very similar to the word pondering. Treasuring up means you're exerting a mental effort in storing information so as to have continual access and use of it. That's from the, um, the Greek lexicon. The mental effort in storing information so as to have continual access to it. So she is really thinking hard about what's happening. And then pondering literally means to give careful consideration to the various implications of an issue. So she's thinking out what is happening in front of her. Um, and that's, that's part of the way that you become humble, is you think really, really hard and deep and long, and you contemplate and you ponder and you chew on what this story is telling us about God. So um, I, th- I think humility comes from imagining the implications of the fact that uh, God came as this baby in Bethlehem. And the, that, that he is descending to the bottom of social hierarchies. That he is gravitating towards the unpopular and the uncool and the unimportant. And that God is repulsed by pride. He's repulsed by selfish ambition and self-promotion. And so I would say the closer you get to the bottom of things, the closer you get to God. The closer you get to the bottom of things, the closer you get to God. And so the, also the reverse would be true. The farther you get from the bottom of things, the farther you get from God. I usually drive uh, my son Cooper to Paisley Middle School most uh, weekday mornings, so um, Paisley Middle School is on Thurman Street, and if you know Thurman Street is a very low-income neighborhood, so I drop him off there and uh, I drive down Thurman Street, turn left on 25th Street, I don't know if you're tracking with me, but uh, 25th Street is heading back towards um, kind of the Kent Roads, Buena Vista area, well there's a stretch of about 200 yards, where you go from one of the lowest income neighborhoods in our city to one of the highest income neighborhoods in our city. And it's kind of amazing to see it happen. It's like you get whiplash almost just how quickly the homes and the yards and everything changes. And you know, I want to say this humbly and with some uncertainty and trepidation, but it seems like based on this text that you're going to find more of the presence of God in, on Thurman Street than you are in Kent Roads. Now, some of you might live in Kent Roads, and uh, I'm sure that's not true in your case, but I think in general, based on what this is saying, that Jesus is more likely to be born on Thurman Street than, uh, than on Arbor Road. It, it seems like God has this tendency to gravitate, again, towards the poor and the humble. I mean, the, the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Um, blessed are the meek, blessed are the the merciful, Um, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. See, these are things um, that God is like. It's what God is like. And um, blessed is Thurman Street, blessed are the unpopular, blessed are the uncool. That table in the cafeteria, every cafeteria has one. Um, You know, I went to Mount Tabor High School. We had one. I was there. Um, those tables, it seems like those are the type places where, uh, in Isaiah 57, 15, God says, I dwell in a high and holy place, but I also dwell with people of contrite and lowly spirit. So I'm just putting out there what God is saying about where God's presence tends to show up. And so I would say if you're feeling distant from God, and from Christ. There could be a lot of reasons for that. I don't pretend to know, particularly in your case, why you're feeling distant. But I know one thing could be true, and that could be that you're looking in all the wrong places for God, and that uh, you are gravitating towards beautiful people, and the right people, and uh, the right parties, and uh, the right meetings, the right vacations, to be with the ones where you want to kind of Promote yourselves, or get in the you know the more in crowd, um, the people that you all everyone wants to be with, uh, the more popular people, the more attractive people, and um, I think you're not going to find as much uh, of the presence of God there. I think that's uh, one reason that a person uh, like Francis of Assisi, um, Mother Teresa, Dorothy Day, uh, people who tend to spend a lot of time with the poor, uh, that's There's a real strong sense of the presence of God in those places. I once went out and tried to evangelize, just kind of street evangelism, which I'm not good at at all. And first uh, I went to uh, the BP that I was describing, and at least people there weren't rude to me, okay? I didn't make any progress, but there was no one that was rude to me. Then I went to the Hanes Mall, and it was completely different, 100% different. It's terrifying, in the Hanes Mall. And I just say that because there are just places where you sense that uh, God is welcome here. This is a place where people are open to God here. And, you know, I hear a lot as a pastor, maybe the number one problem I hear as a pastor is someone will come and tell me, uh, Ben, I feel left out. I feel uninvited. I feel unimportant. I feel ignored. I see my friends on Instagram, photos. I wonder why I'm not there. Why am I not invited to that? And, of course, what I say, um, what any good pastor says is, course you're not being left out. Um, uh, This is your perception of things. People love you. There's nobody would ever want to leave you out. But what if I changed my tactic and I said, you know, I've noticed the same thing. I think you probably are left out a lot. I I do notice that you're not invited to things. But here's the good news. Uh, Jesus Christ is right there with you. And that uh, he was born in a dog's bowl. That he was rejected even from, you know, little Nazareth he was even rejected from there. They tried to throw him off a cliff when he preached at the synagogue. He was um, completely rejected in, in Jerusalem when he went there to, um, to begin his reign. He was crucified. And so uh, that's, that's Mary. That's, that's her thinking through the implications, pondering them, treasuring them. And then the last thing I want to talk about is the shepherds, the shepherds. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. And I'm saying that's humble. I'm saying that uh, to praise God genuinely, uh, not just to sing, um, but actually to be truly bowing down to God and glorifying him is very difficult. Uh, When I became a Christian, that was one of the more difficult things for me to do, was to sincerely um, worship God a king, my creator. Because it implies that I'm not the greatest. It clearly implies that, um, that I am not, um, that there is someone above me, that I am not above everyone. C.S. Lewis says, in God you come up against something which is in every respect, in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so singing hymns and even lifting your hands and shouting out praise to God. um, Just saying, praise God or the Lord, the Lord did this great thing for me today. Again, people who are more humble are more likely to say those kind of things, are more able to say those kind of things. And that's humility. That's what the shepherds were doing. They were glorifying and praising God. And it wasn't just some generic God. It wasn't like the God of deism or just, you know, the God of theism, like the omnipotent, omniscient um, creator. It wasn't just that. I mean, it was that, but it was more than that. It was certainly not the boastful gods of Rome, of Jupiter, Jupiter, Venus, or Mars. They were not praising those guys. They were praising a specific God. They were praising the God who was lying in a manger. Again, the baby lying in a manger, verse 16. That's who they were praising, this kind of God. And um, again, a humble God, almost uh, a God of losers, maybe even a loser God. I know that's kind of, that's a little scandalous, but to call God a loser, uh, isn't that in some sense true? Certainly by the standards of the world, he was a loser. You know, I, um, I'm most likely to raise my hands and praise and even shout and uh, give high fives and maybe even occasionally jump up and down on my feet. There's certain settings in worship where I'll do that and they all involve basketball or football. And um, it's usually BB&T Stadium or the, the Joel Coliseum. And I found it over the years uh, very hard to praise a loser, which is Wake Forest in most sports, um, except in soccer. It's very hard and very humbling to praise a losing franchise, and and yet um, the shepherds are clearly doing that. If you think what they just saw, and who they are, and who Mary is, and where that baby was, and yet they're still willing to say, "That's the God I want to glorify. That's the kind of God I want to praise." Not um, not a God who's going places, but a God who would end his life crucified. I think we all want a God who's kind of an escalator God. You know, we might not believe um, in prosperity gospel and health and wealth, and we say that we don't believe those things, but, um, but we all kind of want to just go higher and higher. It's just part of the American mindset is that we just kind of get, things should get better and better and uh, more and more prominent to some extent. So as a, as a pastor of a little tiny church plant, um, Derek, I'm sure you know about this, Just, uh, it's very difficult at times when, when things are really, really small. So this is back you know years ago, but people always encouraged me. They said, Ben, it's, it's small right now. It's really small. It's okay. It's growing. It'll take time. It's going to grow. Trust me. It'll be okay. And that always helped me, and that was always very satisfying to hear. But in the back of my mind, I always thought... Um, but what if it doesn't? And what if it actually gets smaller? What if it starts shrinking? Is that OK? Is God still God? Is God still good to me if that's happening? And of course, this says yes. Um, in fact, that um, that might be where I find uh, more of God than any other place in my life. Usually it's when you're in your moment of greatest failure, failure, that people find God. So. When you feel left out, and when things are going in the wrong direction at work, um, when you feel very obscure and worthless, you think about what God has done, you think about what God is like, and you find humility, and you find encouragement in that. I want to end by just talking about this uh, composer that I love named William Billings, and I, find, I found out about him maybe um, 20 years ago listening uh, to this thing called the Mars Hill Tape. Uh, Ken Myers was the, the guy who produced these things. They were amazing. I think he still does them, but I, I never heard William Billings, but his choral music is completely unique. I never heard anything like it. I, I highly encourage you to go and YouTube uh, Shiloh, it's uh, the name of the song by him, S-H-I-L-O-H by William Billings. He's considered the first American composer and maybe the greatest choral composer. He died in the year 1800. Uh, He's from Boston. He knew Samuel Adams. Um, He knew uh, a lot of the the founders of our country. But he died in abject poverty. And he left uh, a woman, uh, a wife, and six children. And he was described by a friend as being a man of moderate size, short in one leg, with only one eye, and possessing an uncommon negligence of person. It's not a phrase I usually use, but uh, if you say of someone that you possess uh, an uncommon negligence of person, I think that's an insult. I think that's saying something negative about you. Um, And yet, he wrote, again, one of my favorite Christmas carols, Shiloh. And I'll end by reading this. Just one of the verses. Um, It says, William Billings wrote, Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable to see your God, extended on the straw, extended on the straw, and learn from hence ye rural swains, that's shepherds, learn from hence ye rural, rural swains, the meekness of your God, I love that phrase, the meekness of your God, who left the boundless realms of joy to ransom you with blood. To ransom you with blood. Let me pray for us. Father, as we move to the table of your Son, where we see um, his ultimate humility, I pray that these elements that we're about to partake would strengthen our vision and help us to see clearly who God is, who Christ is, That though he was in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a human being and died on a cross. Um, You came not to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. You washed your disciples' feet with a towel. You even served your enemies by um, pointing out their sin to them who hated you and crucified you Uh, we praise you humble christ for this virtue that is so deep and endemic to who you are and we pray now that at this table um, that you would um, draw us low with with yourself that we would realize who you are and that we're not really naturally like that but that you would by that process make us more like you